You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, Rear Admiral of the Red, John Benbow, arrived in Boston to find orders awaiting him. Orders that he returned to England. Now, I said that he was ordered home because a war threatened to break out any minute, and that's true. But there was another reason. William Kidd. Well, not William Kidd himself, but a bunch of his stuff. See, William Kidd and Lord Bellamont and a few of the other important prisoners had been taken to London a few weeks earlier. But in the meantime, that voyage down to St. Thomas had returned with a bunch of Captain Kidd's treasure. Add to that everything that Bellamont had already tracked down around New England and... Well, you've still only really got a fraction of what Captain Kidd had taken from the Quita merchant, but it was enough that it was worth taking back to England. Enough that it was only to be trusted to return to England on board a stout warship like that of Admiral Binbow. Beyond just the treasure, though, Binbow did bring back to England a number of Captain Kidd's men and even a few of Henry Every's men. Those pirates who had sailed with Henry Every had actually already all been acquitted, some of them at the Old Bailey in England and some of them back in America, but the authorities in Boston, when they got arrested, didn't believe them, so they've got to go prove it again. None of them were going to hang, though. Part of the reason that William Kidd would sit in prison for so long after returning to England 
was because they were waiting on John Benbow to arrive. Once he did, with all of that treasure and a few notable pirates like Nicholas Churchill, they would be able to get started with the proceedings. But Benbow, aside from transporting these goods, was not going to be involved. Instead, he presented himself to the Admiralty. When he arrived, he received word that, well, first of all, that King William was dead, but second of all, that the new queen, Anne, was delighted at this windfall of treasure. She saw that all of the silver and gold and diamonds were not returned to their rightful owners. The merchants who owned the Quita merchant were not repaid by England. Instead, all of the money was donated to the Greenwich Hospital, that naval hospital that specialized in hook hands and peg legs. Benbow then gave a lengthy report about the defenses of England's enemies in the West Indies. It was an impeccable report about shore batteries and fortresses, naval strength, but of particular interest to the Admiralty was his information about the Spanish treasure fleet. This is episode 306, The Dunghill of the Universe. The internal politics of the Admiralty around this era can be kind of hard to pin down. You know, we have records of the minutes of their meetings, but by this point, those meetings were mostly formal affairs. It was a bunch of bewigged lords proclaiming their decisions in a very official capacity. What we don't have excellent records of are the debates and discussions that led to those decisions. And I bring this up because John Benbow is about to get promoted again, and I'm not sure who actually made the decision. I suspect that it came from, if not the highest office in the land, then just adjacent to it. If it wasn't Queen Anne herself, I suspect it was her husband, the Lord High Admiral. You see, Queen Anne was new to the job, and new monarchs really like to promote able people into positions of greater authority. The entrenched bureaucrats and officers who were already in place might have conflicting loyalties. Not necessarily to, you know, a malicious power, but imagine, say, you've got an admiral on the admiralty board who was deeply loyal to the good King William. This was not uncommon, as so many officers had come up with William during the Glorious Revolution. Now, this hypothetical admiral, and I, I mean it, you know, there's nobody I've got in mind here, but this admiral may not have any animosity to Queen Anne, you know, the rightful heir of King William, but he might think that he knows better what William would have wanted, so he might work toward that goal instead of what the new queen says. All the while doing so, with the best intentions, you know, trying to do what he thinks is right for the nation, and he might even be seen as, you know, a, a loyal opposition. But for the queen, that's not great. And then, of course, there is the very real possibility that some of them might have actual loyalty to a malicious power, or, you know, the much more common, just greed and corruption. Or maybe they just don't like you. That's why new monarchs like Queen Anne were so eager to promote new men into positions of power. Beyond that, though, John Benbow was a national icon. 
He was the bravest man on the sea, a hero that the people just adored. In part, they loved John Benbow so much because he was a commoner, and a fairly low-born commoner. His father was a tanner, and John Benbow was only four years old when he died. Benbow joined the Navy as a cabin boy at a very young age to escape poverty, and he turned out to be enormously intelligent and enormously talented. He was a low-born lad made good simply by his own merit, and that's a story that people love. It also makes the Queen look really, really good when a man like that gets a big promotion under her watch. Thanks to his low birth, though, I imagine it came as something of a surprise when John Benbow learned that he was to be promoted yet again. You know, he was Rear Admiral of the Red. That's the highest-ranking Rear Admiral. To get promoted beyond that was uncommon for a commoner. It wasn't unheard of, and it was becoming a lot less uncommon here in about 1700 when everybody was quickly realizing that skill at sea was actually really important for the maintenance of the empire. But John Benbow was still probably at least a little surprised to be promoted to vice-admiral of the blue. The vice-admiralty was a relatively elite club. Benbow was also given command of a new ship, HMS Breda. Breda was a fantastic ship of the line. A nine-year-old, 70-gun, 1,090-ton, third-rate ship of the line. She was a queen of the seas, and John Benbow was honored to command her. With his new position and his new ship, Benbow organized his officer corps and took his new fleet to the Downs. Now, I'd like to clear something up about the word fleet. There are kind of two distinct meanings for the word fleet. On the one hand, it's an official designation, a huge naval unit made up of three squadrons. We're talking about a couple of hundred ships here. You know, you'd talk about the Indian Ocean Fleet, or the Home Fleet, or the Mediterranean Fleet, and really those were the big three. Every other unit designation usually belonged to one of those fleets, officially speaking. And while those fleets all had an Admiral of the Red who was in overall command, that Admiral of the Red almost always stayed in London, usually at the Admiralty. When a naval unit was actually deployed to a place like, say, the West Indies, that was almost always a squadron, either the blue, white, or red. What Benbow actually commanded here was the blue squadron of the home fleet as their vice-admiral, and vice-admirals were usually the highest rank to actively command ships on the water. On the other hand, there's the colloquial definition of the word fleet. So when I say John Benbow's fleet was going to the Downs, I actually mean his squadron, but it's a large group of ships, otherwise called a fleet. Now that that bit of pedantry is cleared up, John Benbow got to work, but his first job at the Downs was actually kind of dull. It was important, but as far as a good story is concerned, kind of dull. 
John Benbow spent almost a year at the Downs, and they served as kind of a fleet in being. You know, just trumpeting England's naval readiness to the French. But while they served as a fleet in being, Benbow was overseeing a, uh, a scientific study. A large group of doctors and surgeons and scientists from the Royal Society and the Greenwich Hospital and a number of other institutions in England, they were assigned to Benbow's fleet to study shipboard diseases. The crews of Benbow's fleet were only allowed to eat their regular rations, you know, hardtack, some questionable meat, stale water that was cleaned with a tot of rum, not exactly a healthy diet. The men were not particularly pleased with this because they were at the Downs, and remember, the Downs had all of those little boats going from ship to ship, selling all kinds of delectable treats. Food, candies, drugs, alcohol, and women. The men were not allowed to buy any alcohol, candy, or food. The drugs were overlooked, and the women were positively encouraged. You know, all of these quote-unquote wives were allowed to come visit their quote-unquote husbands as often as possible. And you might be thinking, wow, that sounds like a perfect recipe to make everyone really, really sick. And you'd be right, and that was the point. Regular Navy rations and women of ill repute made men sick. Everyone knew it, but now they had all of those researchers writing down exactly what was happening to the day, how these men got ill, what their symptoms were, that kind of thing. It was a formal study that then these researchers could take back to the Admiralty and say, hey, we found out that regular rations make people sick. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. 
It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. After a couple of months of this, those doctors and surgeons began to administer some new proposed cures to the diseases that the men were suffering. The important one was a miracle elixir that was being pushed by a Dr. Moses Stringer. Stringer was one part visionary, one part mad scientist, and one part total quack. But his new miracle elixir was promising. He called it the salt of lemons. In his book, The Admiral Benbow, Sam Willis writes, quote, Stringer was only too keen to sing their praises from the rooftops. In a published tract, he claimed the elixir cured, among many hundreds of other ailments, nothing less than the plague, the pestilence, all malignant fevers, snake bites, and all inveterate deadly poisons whatever, deafness, smallpox, ringworm, and miscarriage. End quote. The salt of lemons was simply a crystal form of citric acid. Suffice it to say, citric acid did not cure deafness, plague, or all deadly poisons, but it was very good for scurvy. Aside from just, you know, boosting the immune system. And were a sailor to add this salt of lemons to a mug of water that already carried a tot of rum, it was positively delicious. The sailors loved it. Now, of course, England was not the first to discover that citrus was good for preventing scurvy. I think that was probably the Chinese. But they were the first power in Western Europe to adopt its use across the board for their naval power. Here in 1701, it was John Benbow's fleet, bound for the West Indies, that was the first to carry a large amount on board in an attempt to keep his men healthy. Once this study was complete, Benbow's fleet spent a month or two just kind of patrolling the English Channel. Which, you know, he did, but that was only part of the job. See, these Channel patrols would take Benbow right by the French port of Brest. And whenever he passed by Brest, a small boat carrying an agent of John Benbow would nonchalantly make his way into the city where he would meet with a double agent in France who took reports from a vast network of spies. Benbow was collecting a huge amount of intelligence from this spy network, and if most of it weren't exactly world-shaking, they did receive a lot of news about French intentions in the war to come. But one bit of news did shake the world, at least a little. It was news concerning the Spanish treasure fleet. Now, the exact nature of what Benbow learned is murky. I mean, he learned it from a network of spies in France, so it's not like they, you know, published the recorded minutes of his findings. Similarly, we can't be exactly sure what his actual orders were here. Everything was very secretive. But we do know that Benbow was given orders to intercept the Spanish treasure fleet. 
apparently, Benbow had learned that France had intentions to seize the Spanish treasure fleet. If we are to believe what few snippets we have, Benbow's orders were to escort the fleet to a port of safety to keep all of that silver out of French hands. If the Spanish commander balked at this, as he was sure to do, Benbow was to secure the treasure by any means necessary and then return the treasure not to Spain, but to England. There, the English would be able to keep the treasure safe from the dastardly French who wanted to seize it. I don't think we'll ever know if France really intended to seize the Spanish treasure fleet, but I'm inclined to doubt it. Because let's say that Benbow succeeded. He would have captured fully half of Spain's yearly budget, and he would have brought that to England, where the government would hold it hostage. If, say, France were to engage in a war against England, the Netherlands, and the Holy Roman Empire, as she had back during the Nine Years' War, all of that money sitting in London would surely influence Spain's decision to join. Benbow waited at the Azores for a few weeks for the treasure fleet, but they never showed up where they were supposed to be. It looks like he probably arrived just a little bit too late. When his supplies began to run low, notably the salt of lemons and his beer, Benbow was forced to continue on to the West Indies. And for the record, the French did not capture the fleet. When Benbow arrived at Jamaica this time, though, he would not be met with the frosty reception he had enjoyed last time. William Beeston, Lieutenant Governor of Jamaica, was writing the Admiralty frantic letters, very nearly begging them to send Benbow along with a fleet with the utmost haste. He wanted them here, and he wanted them here now. Of course, there was very little the Admiralty could do to hurry Benbow along because he was waiting for the Spanish treasure fleet. If not for that, he would have already arrived in the West Indies. The reason Beeston was so frantic was because of the aggressive French posture in the region. More and more, they were pretty clearly planning a massive expansion in the West Indies. Any sensible person would assume that any French expansion in the West Indies would come at the expense of either the English or the Dutch, their enemies. But... The intelligence that Benbow had gathered from his spy network in France suggested a different plan on the part of the French. He had learned relatively reputably that France intended to expand into Spanish colonial territory. And that's not as crazy as it might sound. I mean, remember just a few months back when French soldiers marched into the Spanish Netherlands and took command of all of their forts on the border with the Dutch. All of a sudden, the Spanish were out, and French officers were giving orders. That's a Spanish territory falling into French hands because Philip V, grandson of the French king, sat on the Spanish throne. Now, I don't think anybody believed that France was going to march into Mexico or sail on Cuba and start to attempt to give orders, but... 
there were other Spanish colonies that were at risk. I mean, think about Santo Domingo. Hispaniola had been contested between the French and Spanish for decades, ever since the very first Bucanyi had arrived there. In the last war, the Nine Years' War, Hispaniola had really been the front line in the West Indies. England hadn't had a huge role to play in the West Indian War because so much fighting was going on between France and Spain. Remember the tragedy of La Limonade? That's that little colony that Lauro de Graff and his friends started on the northern coast of Hispaniola, in territory that probably technically belonged to Spain, and then the Spanish marched in and destroyed it. And sure, they might be allies now, but the Spanish on Hispaniola very much remembered how much the French desired to move into their territory. If anything, this new dynamic, you know, Philip V, grandson of Louis XIV on the Spanish throne, well, that made the possibility that the French would claim the whole of Hispaniola much more likely. Benbow decided to play into those concerns, given the intelligence he had from his spy network. He wrote to the Viceroy of Mexico and the governor in Havana, informing them, you know, which he really shouldn't do, these are state secrets that I learned through very delicate relations, but he informed them of what he had found. He also went on to give them a few other state secrets. Namely, he told the viceroy and the governor that the Habsburg emperor, Leopold I, was even now preparing a fleet of 40,000 men to sail on Cadiz. Once the port had fallen, they were going to march on Madrid. They were going to place Leopold's grandson, the rightful king of Spain, on the throne. Naturally, Benbow was only telling the viceroy this because, after all, they would be allies once the dust settled from this massive military maneuver. Maybe, viceroy, it would be in your best interest, for the sake of your career, you know, not to interfere when the war breaks out. The Spanish responded in a non-committal fashion, but, as we will see, Benbow had planted some seeds that would bear fruit. In the meantime, though, Benbow had a major problem. The men in his fleet were falling ill. All of that salt of lemons had run out, and scurvy was beginning to run rampant, not to mention all of the other tropical diseases that these Europeans had never encountered before. Now, Benbow ordered the man who was in charge of the sailor's health in Port Royal, a Jamaican official, not a fleet official, he ordered him to give them lemons. You know, hey, we've got this study, it's proven, that's what you need to give them. But this guy was stubborn. He didn't believe in any of this newfangled research. He wanted to follow time-honored traditions. In the treatment of scurvy, instead of, you know, citric acid, he employed a regular dose of, and I'm not making this up, of powdered toad's eyes. This did not cure the men, and Benbow was furious. So he decided it was in his best interest to build a hospital in Jamaica, but he refused to do so in Port Royal, a place that had shown him so much disrespect. Benbow viewed Port Royal as, quote, the dunghill of the universe, the refuse of the whole creation, 
the clipping of the elements, a shapeless pile of rubbish confusedly jumbled into the emblem of chaos. It is the nursery of heaven's judgment, where the malignant seeds of all pestilence were first gathered and scattered to punish mankind. The town is the receptacle of vagabonds, the sanctuary of bankrupts, the stool for the purges of our prisons, as sickly as a hospital, as dangerous as the plague, as hot as hell, and as wicked as the devil. End quote. So instead of building a hospital in Port Royal, he chose a site outside of the city. It was a large plot of undeveloped land. Unfortunately for Benbow, the reason that that large plot of land remained undeveloped was because during the spring rainy season, it turned into a swamp. A swamp infested by mosquitoes. At first... In his new hospital, the men did begin to recover from their scurvy, given the proper treatment. But as soon as the rains began to fall and the mosquitoes began to hatch, they all began to catch yellow fever. It was an outright epidemic that almost destroyed his fleet before he moved his men out of there. And this was just kind of how things went. The fleet just sat around in and around Jamaica with very little to do. The men were mostly just spending their time getting drunk and catching every venereal disease known to man. It was not a happy experience for any of them. But finally, on 8 May 1702, a Captain William Whetstone arrived in the West Indies to join John Benbow and his fleet. Whetstone commanded a fleet of six frigates and his flagship, HMS Canterbury, a 60-gun, fourth-rate ship of the line. This new fleet and all of these fresh sailors were very much welcome to Benbow, but so was the news that Whetstone brought with him. Whetstone had letters informing the Admiral that England had declared war on France. In addition, John Benbow was to be promoted yet again, this time to Vice Admiral of the White. He took the opportunity to promote Captain Whetstone to Rear Admiral of the White. And now things could begin to happen. Admiral Benbow had two missions to see to. First, the super-secret mission. Benbow was to intercept and capture, or as a last resort, sink, the Spanish treasure fleet. Now, I was originally planning to build this up into a big dramatic set piece. You know, like, on 15 May 1702, the Admiral Benbow and his fleet of warships disembarked to intercept the great, legendary, unbelievably rich Spanish treasure flota. They endured many hardships in their voyage and blah, 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 which, you know, that's all true. The fleet was still racked by sickness, and there was a growing discontent among the officer corps, which we'll talk more about next time. But I wanted to build up this big dramatic set piece, seeming like it was, you know, building to the big climax, because I think I know how much we all really want to see someone capture the Spanish treasure fleet. But the thing is, Binbo doesn't do it. And it's not that he failed, he just didn't get a chance. 
First of all, he dispatched Whetstone to go track down the governor of Saint-Domingue, Jean-Baptiste Ducasse. But Benbow took the majority of his fleet to go capture the Spanish treasure flota. It took about a month trying to track it down when he finally learned that it had already left the region. It was gone. So, John Benbow decided to join Rear Admiral Whetstone in his hunt for Jean-Baptiste Ducasse. He might not have captured the Spanish treasure fleet, but what was to occur was the first major naval battle of the War of Spanish Succession. And the outcome of that battle would convince the Admiralty and the Queen that a large fleet in being in the West Indies was not their best tactic. Instead, perhaps... They should focus on privateers. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support this show. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. Everybody who has recommended this show. And all of our supporters on Patreon. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight